Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. Today's talk is about a book written more than 60 years ago, but as relevant today as it has ever been. Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition explores how the ways we consume and the ways we work have a profound influence on who we are and how we do politics. Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas. Quite a few of the authors that I've talked about in this series have been very strong critics of the basic idea of modern politics, at least as it manifested itself in their time. They kind of hated the state as they saw it. Wollstonecraft hated her state for everything that it left out, all the power and corruption that it turned a blind eye to, concealed, ignored. Marx and Engels hated the state for everything that they thought it tried to freeze in place, the power and corruption and oppression of capitalist economic order that the state tried to cover up. Gandhi hated the modern state for what it did to the experience of being human, the way it mechanised it, rationalised it, distorted it, and again, ultimately, corrupted it. And so, in their way, these critics were critics of Hobbes, the Hobbesian state, for what it left out, for what it tried to freeze in place, for what it distorted and corrupted by being too mechanical, too rational, too impersonal. And yet, I think it's fair to say that Wollstonecraft, Marx, Engels, Gandhi weren't thinking about Hobbes at all. Why would they? For them, Hobbes, insofar as they were aware, was an incidental figure in the history of ideas. That's often how he's been treated. People have often thought of Hobbes as a kind of outlier, slightly eccentric, because he really was pretty eccentric, almost absurd, a kind of example of what happens if a very clever person is allowed to run away with an idea and take it to its absurd conclusion. That's obviously not how I see Hobbes. I think Hobbes is in many ways the presiding genius of modern politics. But I completely understand if you're Gandhi fighting for Indian independence, you wouldn't waste your time worrying about Hobbes, nor would Marx, nor I think really would Wollstonecraft. But the author I'm talking about today did worry about Hobbes. In this case, the connection is explicit. Hannah Arendt went out of her way to blame Hobbes for some, not all, but some of what had gone wrong with modern politics, precisely because of his, and it was his explicitly, idea of the modern state. She thought, and she named him, that the Hobbesian, calculating, rationalistic conception of politics, mechanistic, reductive, risk-averse, had reduced what politics was, had reduced the human condition. 
the title of the book I'm going to discuss today, and had basically screwed up the modern world. It wasn't just Hobbes's fault, that would also be absurd. But she did treat Hobbes, like I have, as a kind of originator, in her terms almost the original sin of modern politics. And part of the reason she did that was to try and get away from the kind of story that I've been telling. So as I said at the beginning of these talks, there are a million different places you could start the history of ideas. I've chosen to start it in 1651 with Leviathan. Arendt thinks that's a really dangerous place to start because it ignores, it wipes away everything that went before. And she thinks that what went before really matters. And in part, what she was trying to do by identifying Hobbes as one of her villains is to suggest that that modern story is contingent. It isn't the beginning. It comes somewhere in the middle of a story. It's one path that could have been taken, that was taken. It's not the only path that might have been taken. There are many other ways of doing politics. She wasn't nostalgic for pre-modern conceptions of politics. She didn't want to turn the clock back to ancient Greece or ancient Rome. But she definitely did think that there was something worth rescuing in what came before the modern state. You could almost say that she was trying to rescue politics from what the modern state had done to it. Hannah Arendt is, for many people in the 21st century, an object of deep fascination. She is a very fashionable political thinker. That is, a lot of people read Arendt, a lot of academics write about her. She is perhaps the most written about political theorist of the 20th century in academic writing in English anyway. Part of the fascination with her does not come from her ideas. It comes from how she lived her life and what she experienced, because her life was touched in many ways by the dark heart of modern politics, its ground zero, the worst form of the modern state of all, the Nazi state, the Hitler regime. The Hitler regime overshadowed parts of Arendt's life. But in three ways in particular, Arendt's story is deeply fascinating to people because of how differently she was touched by that experience. She was born in 1906 to a Jewish family, a secular Jewish family in Hanover in Germany. The first of these experiences is what happened to her as a student when she had a relationship, a sexual relationship with her teacher as a young woman, an older man, Martin Heidegger, the philosopher, to become a world-famous philosopher, another of the dominant figures in 20th century thought, but also to become, after his relationship with Arendt, a Nazi. That is, at least he joined the Nazi party and he was, at some level, complicit with the regime. There is a fascination for many people in the story of the young Jewish woman and the relationship with the man who would be a Nazi. The second part of her story that is fascinating and emblematic is what happened to her when Hitler came to power, because like many Jews, she fled. She went into exile in Paris, in France, and then when France was taken over by the Nazis, she had to flee again, and she ended up in the United States. So she was an emigre twice over. 
And that emigre experience is also, for many people, emblematic of something that happened to thought and ideas in the 20th century. Many Germans, many Jewish Germans who wound up in the United States. And Arendt never became American, not in the fullest sense. She's described on her Wikipedia page as German-American. But like many who left Germany and wound up in America, her ideas are a kind of hybrid of the two nations, but also a hybrid of the emigre experience. And then the third thing was in many ways the thing that made her world famous. She made her reputation in America with a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism that was published in 1951. But she became more than that in 1963 when she published the book Eichmann in Jerusalem, that among other things, gave her her catchphrase. I've been saying that many of these thinkers have a catchphrase, and that is certainly true of Arendt. The banality of evil, the subtitle of that book, and the phrase for which she is known, and her account of Eichmann is known, summed up something, but only a small something of her thought. The idea that there was at this heart of darkness, not something terrifying or something evil, but something banal. She went and watched and reported on Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem, and she concluded that if you strip away the mask of the faceless bureaucrat, of the timid man in glasses, you don't see some kind of monster. You don't see the horns and the fangs and the dripping blood. If you strip away the mask of the bureaucrat, what you see underneath is a faceless bureaucrat, that Eichmann was banal all the way through, that what made him so dangerous was that he was mindless, not that he was sadistic and cruel. He was literally a functionary, a functionary of that state, and he illustrated the dangers of bureaucratic, rationalistic politics, that its servants, its civil servants, its public servants, are capable of the most horrific crimes if they simply do what the machine demands of them. That argument was deeply and remains deeply controversial, partly because for some people it seems to let Eichmann off the hook. There isn't enough moral outrage. And for some people because it treats the Nazi regime not as some kind of icon of evil, not as the exception but as something emblematic. And Arendt herself certainly resisted the idea that her life and her thought should be reduced to her experiences of fascism. She did treat fascism as emblematic rather than iconic of evil, that it was typical of something more than itself. It was typical of totalitarianism. And totalitarianism embraced more than just fascism. It embraced Stalinism too, and that totalitarian regimes had much in common that went beyond their ideological differences. And then totalitarianism itself was emblematic of modernity, that there was something that connected the totalitarian state with the modern state, something in its mechanical, unthinking, mindless, mass quality, the way in which it reduced human beings the cogs in the machine, and if you were unlucky, and if that machine was set on a destructive path, Arendt thought that modernity 
wouldn't save you. Modernity was part of the problem. So Arendt did pretty much everything in her power to get away from the things that people are fascinated by her now. And because she remains both so controversial and so fashionable, I have to say I've always been a bit resistant to Hannah Arendt. And I went a long time not reading her writing or not reading much of it. I thought some of it sounded a little pretentious. It was certainly ambitious, but also there was something grandiose about Arendt. And there was also, to be honest, something a little bit irritating about some of the people who were so fascinated by her. I had that feeling that is expressed in the title of a chapter in a recent book by the British writer Paul Mason, a book about the coming age of the machine. And he has a chapter that's called Reading Arendt is Not Enough. So I didn't. And then a couple of years ago, thanks to a student, I was persuaded to read this book from 1958, The Human Condition. And I have to say, it completely blew me away. It wasn't what I expected. It was a little in that, to be honest, again, it is a bit pretentious. It's an extraordinarily wide-ranging book. The ideas tumble over each other. The writing is, at times, quite grandiose, although at other times it's startlingly clear and precise. But the thing that I wasn't expecting was that a book written in 1958 would seem so contemporary, that is, so 21st century, and also in its way so prescient. Because it is a book about machines, and it's a book about the age of machines, of a world that potentially is going to be dominated by machines, including the machines that Arendt associates with Hobbes. Again, she makes that connection. Computers and calculators those kinds of machines, the number crunchers that teeter on the edge of a kind of thinking if we reduce thinking to calculation and rationalism. And as she says of Hobbes, he was the man who reduced politics to calculation, literally, to a kind of number crunching, a form of maths. And she thought that the machines that she saw around her were themselves evidence of that whole direction of thought in modern life, and that these two things were somehow mutually reinforcing, that the mechanistic, rationalistic modern state had paved the way for the reductive thinking machines. And these machines, these computers, were bringing out the worst in the modern state. And that's something that definitely seems to resonate in the year 2020. The other thing that makes Arendt's book so prescient is the particular concerns that she articulates about this mechanistic, automised age concern work. And that's the thing that we often are worried about today. What will the coming of these kinds of machines mean for the human experience of work, of having a job, of trying to earn a living? What we do with much but not all of our lives seems under threat, or at least to be in tension with the age of the machine. So it's a book about politics, but it comes at politics through different categories of work. And that's how I'm going to try and describe it here. I'll get to what you might call a political argument in a bit. But the easiest way to sum up what Arendt thinks about politics is to try and explain what she thinks about work. 
And to do that, it's important to distinguish three categories of which work is only one. So in the human condition, Arendt talks about three ways in which human beings can do things in the world. One is the category of what she calls labor. The second is the category of what she calls work. And the third is the category of what she calls action. Labor, work, action. We don't always distinguish those words, particularly the first two Arendt thinks that we should. So what is labor? So labor for Hannah Arendt is the natural domain of human activity. It's what we do as human beings because we're born to do it. It is the domain of consumption, that is, trying to consume enough energy to stay alive. It's a kind of basic, almost Hobbesian idea of what we need to do to remain creatures in motion, energy in, energy out. The primary form of labor is trying to get enough food to live. It is often repetitive, backbreaking, tilling of fields, trying to extract food from the land, or work in our modern sense, not in our rent sense. That is, doing something in order to earn enough to subsist, doing the kind of work that allows you to feed yourself or feed your family. So what distinguishes labor is that it is relentless. People on the whole have to keep laboring to stay alive. It is often very repetitive. You often do the same thing day after day after day. It's also, in a sense, momentary and fragmentary. You pursue the food, you eat the food. A few hours later, you need more food. It's cyclical. The process repeats itself. But it's also essential. What Arendt calls work, by contrast, belongs not to the domain of the natural, but the artificial. So work is where we do the things that bring into being artifacts, as she calls them, that would not exist without us. Labour is nature driving us. Work is us trying to build things that don't exist in nature. And this can be everything from a chair or a table through to a factory, maybe a factory in which people labour, but the factory itself will produce things that do not exist in nature. It could be a building. It could be an object of beauty, an object of utility. It could be something very functional or something very elaborate. It could be a work of art. It could be a constitution. It could be the architecture of a state. What distinguishes work is that the things that it produces are, when they are well-built, durable. So they don't function according to a natural lifespan. It's not energy in, energy out, if you've built a well-designed table. That table will last, even if you don't feed it. And the same will be true of lots and lots of kinds of artefacts. And work for Arendt has a connection with craft and skill. Things can be well-built, badly built. Things can be thought through or not thought through. Of course, not everything that is the result of work will be long-lasting. A badly built table might fall over the day after you built it. But the things that are long-lasting will endure, and many of them endure beyond a natural human lifespan. So when the labouring life is over, including the labouring life 
of the artificer, of the craftsperson who built the object. The object may endure, and that will be true of a building, and it might well be true of a political constitution as well. And then there's action. So if labour is natural and work is the world of artifice, the artificial, action is closer to the world of fiction or the imaginary. Action is what human beings do when they tell the story of their lives, when they try and make something of themselves through acting in the world. The primary means they use will be language. It will be communication. And another word for action, not the only one, but one, is politics. Politics as not structures and architectures and rules and laws and constitutions. Politics as human beings acting in the world, communicating with each other, trying to build something that didn't exist, not because it is an artefact, but because it is an expression of who they are. So it's close to the world of narrative and fiction, because what is constructed through action is always a kind of story, and it exists in the moment. It almost exists out of time. One of the features of human action for Arendt is that it's almost evanescent. You may say something compelling and beautiful. You might tell an amazing story, and the story exists in the telling. And when the telling is done, it's not clear what does still exist. And yet, a well-told story is potentially eternal. That is, a story that lasts, a story that somehow resides in the minds of the hearers and is told and retold in different forms, can even outlast a well-built table. Arendt is not trying to suggest that there is a kind of historical progression here, that the human condition moves from labour to work to action. It's certainly true, it's true in 1958, it's still pretty much true today, that the predominant experience of the human condition for most of the human beings who are alive now and who have ever lived is of labour, relentless pursuit of the things that have to be consumed in order to stay alive. For many people, that is the human condition, and it hasn't gone away. It's also true that Arendt's ideas of action, in many ways, predate in historical terms the world of work, that is the modern world of work, of artificial construction. They come from the ancient world. And it's certainly not true that Arendt thinks that you can have action without work or labour, that there's some kind of idealised form of the human life where all we do is politics. You need labour because even people who are acting in the world need to feed themselves. And even if they're not doing the hard work, someone's going to be doing it for them. And you also need work. You need to construct things that will last. And Arendt is pretty clear that a stable, successful politics does need well-built constitutional architecture. You can't just make it all up as you go along. So this is not an argument that says action good, work middling, labour bad. But it is an argument that says what can go wrong, particularly under conditions of modern life, is that these categories bleed into each other. Even if they ought in some way to support each other, they should not be confused with each other. And Arendt thought increasingly, we, we moderns, 
were confusing them. So there are two confusions in particular, I think, that she was trying to warn against. One was the tendency of work to collapse back into labour. That is, the attempt to build durable artefacts gets reduced to a form of consumption. And this is a criticism in part of societies that were increasingly organised around consumption, treating their citizens as consumers. Often when people worry about what might go wrong in the relationship under conditions of modernity between the natural and the artificial, they think the real danger is that artifice colonises nature, that somehow we take the natural world and we overlay it with mechanisms and inanimate structures. They pave paradise and put up a parking lot. That Joni Mitchell life is emblematic of that fear. Cut down the trees and put them in a tree museum and charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. That's what happens when nature gets taken over by artifice. That was not what Arendt was worrying about. I don't think she had a Joni Mitchell view of the world. I'm not sure she was even that keen on nature. She was much more worried about what happens, not when nature gets colonised by the artificial, but when the artificial gets colonised by nature. That is, when the world of work gets subsumed by the rhythms, the structures of labour, of consumption, the relentlessness of it, the repetitiousness of it, the cyclicality of it, the never-endingness of it. Because the thing about consumption, though individual human lives come to an end, the consumption required to keep the species going never ends. In part, for Arendt, this is an attack on 19th century conceptions of work and politics labour, the workers, as Marx called them, the proletariat. They weren't workers in Arendt's sense. They were labourers. And they were living the life of relentless subsistence consumption. And to build a politics around those people and to claim that that version of the human experience was the one that gave you the deepest insight was for Arendt a category mistake. But the other reason her book is so interesting is it also speaks to a kind of critique of 21st century politics and social life. Because we're not living in Marx's world, but we are living in Jeff Bezos's world. This is the world of Amazon. This is the world of online consumption. And this is the world in which the things that we produce through work, the artifacts that we build, real, solid, or made out of data and information, it doesn't matter. But the things that we consume online, we increasingly consume them according to the relentless rhythms of natural consumption, insatiable, cyclical, never-ending. You buy something, you think you need it, two hours later, you think you need more of it or of something else. It's like we're feeding a hunger And the organisation of our lives, not least around advertising. Advertising is the engine that drives the modern economy in ways that seem completely bizarre and yet somehow foreseen by Arendt. That world, the world in which work has been reduced to the level of labour, is also the world in which we are all relentless consumers. And Arendt's warnings about what that does to the human condition strike me at least was pretty prescient. The other worry she had, the deeper political worry, the one for which she blamed Hobbes, 
She doesn't blame Hobbes, I think, for the coming of the consumer age, but she does blame Hobbes for the possibility that action can be reduced to the level of work. So just as work should not become labour, so action should not become work. That is, creative, human, political interchange through language, through storytelling. That shouldn't be reduced to mechanical construction. That shouldn't be simply artificial. That shouldn't be machine-like. And yet Hobbes, in Arendt's mind, was the thinker who turned the world of action into a world of mechanical behaviour, that he built the Leviathan, the monster, not actually as a biblical monster, but as a kind of computer, an automaton, a machine, a number-crunching or person-crunching machine, and reduced the citizen to the subject, and the subject is just a cog in the machine. That was her critique of Hobbes, She connected it to the machine age that she lived in. One of the oddities about Arendt is that it is a book that both seems prescient and seems completely out of date, because the kinds of machines that she saw around her, that she thought were perpetuating this relentless turning of human beings into just bits of machinery, were not the machines that we tend to worry about in the 21st century. So when she thought of computers... She didn't think of microchips. I'll just read a line from Arendt's The Human Condition. All that the giant computers prove is that the modern age was wrong to believe with Hobbes that rationality, in the sense of reckoning with consequences, is the highest and most human of man's capacities. The word that stands out for me in that sentence is giant, the giant computers. These are the computers of 1958, the kind of leviathans, huge, thrumming, hot machines that would take up a whole room and take an hour to do what your phone can do in a nanosecond. She saw computers dominating human beings by scale, but not by scale of processing and speed, almost by physical scale. And at the same time, the other technology that she was most worried about was one that we think about a bit in 2020, but barely at all relative to the kind of hold it had on people's imaginations in 1958 and right through the 1960s, indeed right the way up to the end of the 20th century, space travel. That, for Arendt, was the cutting edge of technology, sending rockets into space. 1957 was the year of Sputnik, the satellite. She was also thinking of the giant telescope that could see out into the universe. And she writes in The Human Condition about what it does to the human condition, that we can see out into the universe and so we can imagine how we look to the universe and how we look is really insignificant. We are just these tiny specks. Indeed, our planet, the only planet on which human beings can live, the only planet on which the thing that Arendt really valued, action, is possible, is just another speck too. The fear for Arendt of technology is that it reduces human beings. It almost shrinks them next to nothing. They are just bits, bits in the larger machinery that whirs through the universe and that we use to try and understand the universe. So we're not much concerned about space travel now. We have other things to worry about. And we don't think of computers as huge leviathans. 
We think of them as increasingly small objects that we carry around with us. But what connects Arendt's fears and what we experience now is that the other way in which human beings can be reduced is not by being tiny relative to the scale of the technology, but by being broken down by the technology, by being fragmented. The technology doesn't go out into the universe and then look back at us and see us as just tiny little things, little ants scuttling around. The technology looks inside us. It looks at our behavior. It treats us increasingly as data points in vast schemes of data. It's what Yuval Harari calls the de-individuation of the individual that can be driven by this kind of data science and this kind of digital technology. We break apart because little bits of us are everywhere. Little bits recording what we thought, what we wanted in the relentless pursuit of consumption, what we believed, what we dreamed, what we loved, even the most human, even the most action-oriented of our behaviours can be reduced to data points. That was Arendt's fear of what happens when action collapses into work. And what she wanted to rescue was a conception of politics that was, for want of a better word, much more human than that. It needed to be on a human scale, the scale at which human beings could think and act and tell stories as individuals. So it's partly also the rescue of the individual from the forces that threatened either to dwarf the individual or to fragment the individual. She thought that politics ought to be a space, and she thought that Hobbes had killed it. It ought to be a space in which human beings can be themselves. They should be the authors of their own story, and politics is where you authorise your life. Hobbes used the word authorised too. He said that we, the subjects of the state, are the authors of the state. But what that means is we allow the state to tell our political story. As I've reiterated in these talks, I don't think Hobbes thought that in telling our political story, the state told the story of our lives, because almost everything in our lives was left out. States didn't have that capacity. Though in the 21st century, you have to wonder whether they might if this technology can see inside our souls. But Hobbes didn't think the state story was our story, but he did think that what political authorization meant was to allow someone else to decide which story we were in politically. Arendt wanted us to create our own political story. She used an ugly word and a slightly obscure word to describe part of what she was after. Action, she said is the space of natality, natal birth. It's where we give birth to things that are not natural. It's not where we give birth to human beings. That, and we use the word, is a form of labor. But it's where we give birth to a version of ourselves and where we have some autonomy over who that person is. We can reinvent ourselves, but she thought only through politics. And only if we can emancipate ourselves from the cold, mechanical hand of Hobbesian rationalism. Only if we can get away from thinking of politics as just an extension of the calculating machine. And I think as an argument, it is both very prescient, quite chilling, and at some fundamental level, wrong. 
I think it gets one thing wrong. And the thing that it gets wrong is what Hobbes was trying to do with his idea of the modern state. And maybe in these talks, I've been focusing on Hobbes too much, that person who can be seen as a marginal, absurd, eccentric figure in the history of ideas. But I focus on him in part because I think he illustrates what for us have become some of the fundamental choices by his subverting what were the choices of politics. I think what Arendt gets wrong about Hobbes is that she assumes that what he was trying to do was reduce human action to the level of mechanical motion, that he wanted in constructing the state as a kind of automaton to turn the people who make up the state, the people and the individuals who make up the people, us, into a species of automata too, that he wanted to make us into kinds of robots. I don't think there's anything in Leviathan to suggest that Hobbes wanted or believed that we should be robots. In a sense, Hobbes thought, yeah, we're robots anyway. Everything in the universe is simply to be defined in terms of motion. But to be human is not just to be an automated machine. Hobbes was not trying to reduce politics to the level of the mechanical. What Hobbes was trying to do in Arendt's terms was to use work, artifice, imagination, clever construction, skill, to build an artificial person. That is, he wanted to make an artificial version of the creature capable of action. So he was adding something to the world of action. He wasn't taking the world of action and bringing it down to the level of the artificial. He was using, for all the reasons that Arendt valued work, using the artificial skill of the human to build something that mimicked human action, but that had the qualities that are required for something to be a successful form of artifice. That is to build something that was durable, that could, in a sense, outlast human action and therefore provide the space in which human action could be possible and could itself last. It's not Arendt's version of action. She thinks the thing that ultimately lasts is the story, though you could say, among the other things that Hobbes was doing, is that he was telling a story of the modern state. The fact that that book Leviathan is so metaphorical and allegorical is because it's a story. It's meant to fire our imaginations. But it's also true that it makes a huge difference to say that the state is an artificial version of us rather than to say that we are artificial versions of the state. Because if the state is an artificial version of us and if the state is well built then the state will have a life of its own and the state will be capable of telling its own stories. And these stories could be imaginative, creative, empowering, fulfilling. They could also not. They could be terrible and stupid and crass and cruel. Anything is possible when a person tells a story, even an artificial person telling a story, because storytelling for our end is the most creative thing of all. So if what Hobbes was trying to do was to build something that was capable of mimicking human action, then he was 
adding to the world of action something that he thought would make more action possible. He may have been wrong. It is possible that that was a quixotic enterprise because in the end, these artificial versions of the human are always reductive and they're not convincing. And that the stories that the state tells, this state that Arendt so feared because of its ability actually to consume human beings and turn them into unthinking, mindless functionaries, that this state was dangerous because, yes, it could tell stories, but they weren't really creative human stories. They were reductive stories. They were the kinds of stories that machines think and articulate. And in the end, they were capable of destroying the human beings who were caught up in them. And that's certainly part of the story of the 20th century, and it's the story that overshadows Arendt's own life. But it's also possible that something else is true. And I think this is what connects Arendt's arguments to many of the anxieties that we have now about our world of machines. So we're not thinking about Sputnik, and we're not thinking about IBM's giant, throbbing, hot computers that are so big that when they take over your office, you have to move out into the corridor. We're thinking about networks. We're thinking about smartphones. We're thinking about the possible coming of artificial intelligence and machines that even if they can't actually think like humans think, even if they can't deploy language in a way that Arendt would recognize as a manifestation of action, even if they can't really tell their own stories, could think in ways that go beyond anything of which humans are capable that their calculating powers, their ability to recognize patterns, what we now call machine learning, could transcend forms of human thought. That fear is real, and we are probably going to be living with it for a long time. But there is, in Arendt's argument, I think, a mistaken assumption. The assumption being that the modern state, the Hobbesian state, because it's a machine, will inevitably side with the other machines that in the age of artificial intelligence, the mechanical state will do what the robots want because the robots will be able to infiltrate its systems because it's nothing but a machine. While Hobbes' state is more than a machine, it's a kind of person. It's meant at some level to mimic not mechanical action, but human action. It's actually meant to be on our side It's the machine that we built to control the machines. It's the machine that we built to take our side against mindless, heartless, robotic forms of action and politics. So actually, I think there's another question that we could ask, and it doesn't necessarily produce Arendt's answer. I don't know what the answer is, but at least it's possible that in the age of artificial intelligence, in the new machine age in which we live, The state is not on the machine side. The state could be on our side. Indeed, it's even possible to say that the state is the only instrument we have because it's the instrument that we built to be like us. It's the only instrument we have to take on the machines. To find where you can read The Human Condition and other writing about Arendt, please consult our show notes or go to the website talkingpoliticspodcast.com.
Next time, David discusses imperialism and violence through the life and thought of Frantz Fanon.